It is really good to see all of you here. Thank you for getting yourself and your families ready to come to the house of the Lord. I'm very excited. I'm very excited about our time together. I feel like the Lord has been placing things in my heart, and I just want to share it with you. I want to talk today about our Father. And just pray that God would give us revelation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the love of God that is in this room. And Lord, for the next few minutes, just anoint my mind and my mouth to speak into the heart of this church. That, Lord, a seed would be planted, and in that, in due time, it would bear much fruit. And, God, we give you thanks and praise. And everybody say amen. amen. You can be seated. I read about a lady that <clears throat> if she found out that you had the flu, she got a laundry basket together. And in this basket, she put crackers, she put Gatorade, she put canned goods, soups of various kinds, ginger ale, and la it's Lysol, I think is how you say it, right? Lysol, those little Lysol wipes, you know what I'm talking about. She puts all of this in a basket and then just takes it and delivers it and puts it on your front doorstep. And when I read about that, I thought, man, that, that's really cool. I, uh, I've always wanted to live at that level of generosity. I've admired that level of generosity. It just doesn't seem that I can ever achieve that level. And when I read that story, I got to thinking that this lady's level of generosity really pales in comparison to the kindness of our Lord. Unfortunately, one of the most famous sermons that have, that's probably ever been preached was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And still to this day, there are streams of Christianity that want you to see God as fierce, as angry, as looking for any possible way that He can find to punish you and to not bless you. Well, the wonderful news is that God is not a tyrant. And that God is not angry. And only 13 times in the Old Testament was the word Father used. 13 times. The word Father is used 155 times in the New Testament. Because your God is not angry, He's not mad. And if he ever does get mad, 
he looks at the cup of wrath that Jesus drank. And it reminds him of the perfect sacrifice for you and I. Your God is not angry. Your God is not mad. Your God is not fierce. Your God is a God of love. Here is the book of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. My brothers and sisters, what I'm going to share with you, please, for the next 30 minutes, give me your attention. God is not just mercy. He is mercy. God is not just love. He is love. When you and I are in our glorified body, that will be the only way we are able to look into the face of God. Because His face is so radiant. His, his power is so phenomenal. His glory is so great that the only way you will be able to look into the face of perfect love is with a glorified body. When you see the face of Jesus, you are going to see love personified. God loves you. And when you discover who God truly is and what his opinion is about you as his sons and as his daughters, it is going to transform your life. I'm going to get very personal with you for the next two minutes. Here's what I have learned to be true in my life. I'm going to speak for me. In the past 40 some odd years of serving God, I have prayed no telling how many times for God to help me to get better. God, I want to improve Please help me to improve. Please help me to get better. Please help me to change. And I'm going to just tell you from my point of view, do I believe it's help? Yes. But I don't believe that it has facilitated transformation. I'm just speaking for me. What has transformed my life especially in the past three years, the most is the love of God. Again, I'm just speaking for me. I stand before you today convinced. I am convinced that love is the greatest power of transformation. And when you get the revelation of how much your father loves you, it begins to change you. Now I no longer pray, God help me. I do pray that, but not in a way that I used to pray it. Now I pray it, God help me just to understand how much you love me. 
Because love has the power to transform you. Again, I'm just talking about me. What I am doing now is, Jandon and I are workaholics. We love to work. But what I am doing now is, I am setting aside my worker bee identity. God doesn't love me based off of my performance. What I am doing now is I'm even setting aside, hang on, I'm setting aside even my servant identity. And I am also beginning to set aside my warrior in the kingdom mentality. So where are you going? My identity is becoming more and more. I am a friend with God. Do I want to work? Sure. Do I want to serve? Sure. Do I want to be a warrior in God's kingdom? Sure. But those are becoming less and less of my identity and I am becoming more and more at rest in being a friend of God. It's changing me from the inside out because I am becoming totally convinced that my father loves me. And for the past five to seven years, I have been renewing my mind to the glorious truth that I, Wayne Nealon, qualify for healing, for provision, for direction, for literally everything that He accomplished for me on the cross. I qualify for it. Not because I'm so good, not because my performance is great, not because I never sin, but because of what he did for me at the cross. You say, Pastor, how do you know that God loves you that much? Because the greatest symbol of love is the cross. There are seven exchanges that I have memorized pretty much that any time the enemy would try to make me feel that God doesn't love me, I look at the cross and I am reminded that the first exchange of the cross was this. He took my sin and gave me his salvation. He took my rags and gave me his righteousness. He took my shame and he gave me his reputation. He took my sicknesses and he gave me his healing. He took my poverty and he gave me his riches. He took my death and he gave me his life. There is no greater symbol of love in the world than the symbol of the cross. And any time the enemy would try to make you think that God doesn't love you, you go back to the cross and you remind yourself that I am not righteous based off of my performance 
are based off of my personal standards. I am righteous because he has placed his righteousness upon me. I am holy because he has made me holy. I have all things because he paid the supreme price to rip the veil so that we could have direct access to the Father. And our Father loves us. He loves us. I want you to think about this. Now, the Apostle John, who was uh, referred to as the Beloved, I want you to think, please, with me. The Apostle John, I want you to imagine in your mind, here's the Apostle John. Here is Jesus' mother Mary. And they're both a witness to the cross. I don't know exactly how long, but uh, a little later, this Apostle that was next to Jesus' mother, witnessed the great crucifixion. He, he wrote this in 1 John 4 and 10. He says, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. How do I know that God loves me? Because I have studied the cross. And when you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, think with me now, please. Never was there ever a man that was so utterly destitute as Jesus was upon the cross. He had no possessions. He had no comforts. He had no defenders. He had no friends. So why did he do it? Pardon the expression. But to make beggars like you and me to become the sons and the children of God. Jesus did not go to the cross because he had sinned. He went because we had. He did not go to the cross because he was poor. He wasn't. He did not go to the cross because he was sick, but because we were. He did not go to the cross because he was cursed. He came to earth because the earth was cursed. And he wanted to take away Adam's curse and give us Abraham's blessings so that we could become the seed of Abraham even though we are Gentiles. We could still be engrafted into that seed. In other words, Jesus did not go to the cross because he needed it. He went to the cross to be the perfect lamb, the sacrificial lamb, so that you and I could know how much the Father loves us. Now, this is very important because here's what you, you got to get. And, and, and I pray that it becomes revelation. Now, everything that you receive from heaven comes through this father-child, father-friend, father-son, father-daughter relationship. Everything. Cannot emphasize that enough. Everything that you receive from heaven now comes through relationship. It doesn't come through transaction. 
God is not your genie. It doesn't come through three wishes. It doesn't come that heaven is a vending machine. It comes through relationship. And 155 times in the New Testament, he said, Father, I am your Father. Teach us, Lord, the disciples said, how to pray. Here's how he starts. Our Father. We do not come now as invited guests. Jesus built the bridge so that now we can come into God's house. Not as invited guests, but as sons and daughters. Jesus built the bridge, not so we had to back in afraid, but that we can come boldly to the throne knowing he is our father and we are his children. As flawed and as imperfect as we are, he still loves us because he sees us through the blood. Our father. This is very important. If you today struggle with your relationship with your earthly father, it's strained. It hasn't been good. You don't even know him. He's hateful. He's absent. He's abusive. He's just not a good person. Then you and I need to ask the Holy Spirit to remove all of the barriers and the hindrances so that we don't look at our heavenly father the way that we look at our earthly father. Because if your earthly father is abusive, if he's absentee, if he's not a good individual, your heavenly father looks nothing like that. Your heavenly father is good. Why is that very important? Please Listen, it is very important because everything you receive from heaven is received from that relationship. And your, your confidence in that relationship is directly tied to how much you receive from heaven. I'm going to say it this way. Because of your ability to receive from God, it is directly tied to your level of confidence that you have in your heart that God loves you. Everything, and I mean everything, that the enemy does is to try to separate you from the love of God. If you have not read the book of Luke, Chapter 15, or that chapter in particular. I would ask you to go home and read it. But for the sake of time, I have to jump right into it. In the book of Luke, chapter 15, there is a story that is known as the prodigal son. The prodigal son leaves for two reasons. Because of sin and because of self. He wants to do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. Sin and self causes him to walk out the door. When he does sin and he does self, eventually, this is what he comes home with. Nothing. 
This, ladies and gentlemen, is not to put you on a guilt trip. It's not to put you in fear. It's not to try to get you to an altar. It's a simple fact. Self and sin will eventually lead you to an empty harvest. It don't happen the first day. It may not happen the second. But give sin and self enough time, and this is what you will end up with. Nothing but a basket of barren regrets. So he looked at his life and said, this is my life, and he came to himself. This is why you don't have to beg God to save people. Ask God to draw them. Ask God to let them come to themselves. Ask God to give them a revelation of where they are in the pig pen of life. And hopefully when they see that and they come to themselves and they become self-aware, they said, listen, he may not let me in as a son, but even the servants do better than I am doing right now. I will arise and go into my father's house and I will say to my father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me one of your servants. Read the story. It's fascinating. The father never replied even to that because he knew that the son had confessed his sin. He knew that the boy had come to himself. And what did he do? He said, here's the ring, authority. Here's the robe, my approval. Here's the fatted calf, make merry. Here is the shoes, the status. It was already in the father's house. And so there it was when he confessed his sin The Father is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness and to welcome us back into the Father's house and restore us because that's His good pleasure. Now, keep reading at the very end of the story. The very end of the story, offense got into the heart of the elder brother. And because he got offended at the way the Father did it, The Bible says that he got angry and he would not go in. And the way the story ends is that the son, because he understood this is self and this is sin and I'm going to repent, he got restored. But the elder brother who was offended got angry at the father and angry at the brother and the story ends with him not going into the house. This is very important. I try to reduce things down to its simplest form. And here's the way I see it. Is that the enemy has three weapons that he constantly brings against you. Number one is sin. Number two is self. And number three is offense. And he wants it all in hopes that this is the way your life will end up. Why then do we need the whole armor of God? If Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, defeated Satan at the cross, then why do we need the armor? Do you realize that every piece of that armor is all defensive except for the sword of the Spirit? Because Jesus already defeated Satan. The armor is so you can defeat him. Jesus has already defeated him. He's already been defeated. You now have the armor. And the only piece of armor that is offensive is the sword of the spirit. Everything else is defensive. Why? Because the enemy is constantly shooting three darts at you. There may be more, but at least these three. Sin. Sin. 
Sin, he's shooting it at you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. He's shooting it at you because now the weapons that we deal with are not carnal, but are mighty through God through the pulling down of strongholds. The devil is defeated. He cannot make you do anything, but thoughts are spiritual. And the enemy will shoot a dart to your mind to get you to think, man, if I only had her, I'd be happy. If I only had him, man, things would go a lot better. Or he shoots the dart of self. I don't need God. I don't need a preacher to tell me what to do. I don't need to do this. I can do what I want when I want to do it. And self. The enemy constantly, his whole, his whole agenda is to get you to separate your relationship with God. Because when you have a relationship with God, this is what your life looks like and can look like. And when Satan knows that he does not want your life looking like this, because the very thing God wants from you is fruit. And the very thing Satan wants from you is an empty basket and a harvest of barren regrets. So you wake up at 75 and you look at your life and you have nothing because you've wasted it. And so the enemy uses three things. He uses sin as a fiery dart. He uses self. And then he uses offense. Are you with me? The enemy wants sin to separate you from the father. Just like it did in the prodigal son story. Satan wants the dart of self. So that you just live in a house of mirrors. And all you think about is self all the time. I'll do what I want when I want. Oh, self. Look at me. He lives. He wants you to live in a prison called mirrors. So all your focus is on is your stinking self. So I've been very transparent with you and I've told you that I've been very selfish all my life. And it wasn't selfish in the fact that if I had three Oreos, I wouldn't give Janet two. It wasn't that selfish. It was selfish and I didn't think of her first. Do you understand that the whole reason why Jesus went to the cross is so that he could give birth to the New Testament church? He was thinking of you from the foundation of the world. He did none of this for himself. He did it all for you. All of it. That's how much he loves you. Right? Is this making sense? Okay, so he did it all for you, not for himself. So this is the love of God that he doesn't think he wasn't thinking of himself when he went to the cross. He had you on his mind. Here's the next thing that the enemy shoots at you is offense, because if you can get offended at your brother or your heavenly father, you back out of the relationship. Come on, somebody. Okay, I don't have time to get into this, but here we go. If you have not read the book of Job, I would really encourage you to read the book of Job, but please read it in the New Living Translation, not the King James Version. Not because I don't love the King James Version, but the New Living Translation brings it to light. Okay, do not have time to get into this, but please, I need your attention. I, I, I can bring a synopsis for the whole book of Job. The enemy came to God and said, have you considered, uh, Jesus said to, to the Satan, he said, have you considered my servant Job that he's perfect in every way? He's an upright man. He said, yeah, I have. He said, but I can't touch him. He said, okay, I'll, I'll remove the hedge. And when I remove the hedge, he said, you can do everything but take his life. I got to hurry, but stay with me. 
He said, okay. So the enemy came in. What did he do? He destroyed his house. He destroyed his kids. He destroyed his livestock. He destroyed his wardrobe. He took his money and he put boils all over his body. Okay. You got to get this. Why did the enemy do that? Because he didn't like his house, didn't like his kids, didn't like his money, didn't like his livestock, didn't like anything about him. No, it didn't have anything to do with that. There's only one purpose only that he attacked all of that is because he thought if I can attack all of that and destroy all of that, it will do the one thing I want. It will sever the relationship that Job has with God. And guess what this is about to start doing now that I plucked it. In just a few days, it's going to start dying. And the very thing that Satan does not want, he does not want you to stay connected to the vine. Because when you stay connected to the vine, your life is going to be like this. But if he can use a fence... Y'all, this is so in me, I am shaking right now. If he can use offense, if he can use sin, and if he can use self, guess what starts happening? No, you may not physically start dying, but spiritually, just like Adam, you start dying. And you can come here, and you can have the dress code, and you can go through the spiritual calisthenics called worship. But inside, you're dying because you're offended at God. Because God allowed things to be taken from you. And you do not understand if he is such a loving God, why am I losing Why am I losing if he is so loving as you say and he had me on his mind? Then why am I losing? Is it because the enemy is after your relationship with God and all the fiery darts that the enemy shoots? Sin, lies, deception, loss, offense is all done for one purpose and one purpose only to destroy the very thing that can cause you to be fruitful and not waste your life. Here's what the enemy tries when he does that. Here, here it is. If God loved you, you would not lose. And if God loved you, you would not have to wait. And if God loved you, where is your job? Where is your health? Where is your spouse? Where is your finances? All in hopes. Here we go again. I know this is being dramatic. But it don't matter if it's sin, self, or offense. All he wants is to break you from the vine. Are you with me? Now, believe it or not, y'all, we got to go a little deeper. Jesus, the man, knows exactly how you feel. Okay, you say, no, he don't. Just stay with me. I'm going to try to calm down here and not just stay with me. Some scholars said that Jesus prayed three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some say he prayed all night. It doesn't matter. He prayed a long time. Okay. I'm going to repeat what I said the other week, not because I uh, 
forgot I said it, but because it's this important. I do not believe in that whether three-hour prayer meeting or all-night prayer meeting, I do not believe for one minute that God was praying for revival because the word revival hadn't even been pinned yet. They didn't even know what revival was. God was not praying for revival for Israel because Israel had already rejected him. He had already said, how many times would I gather you as a hen doth gather its brood, but you would not. I don't believe he was praying for revival. I do not believe he was praying for the local Jewish high school to have a manifestation of God's power. I do not believe he was praying for finances because God didn't come to earn money. I do not believe that he was fighting a spiritual warfare because nowhere is it mentioned about spiritual warfare. It mentions nothing about Israel in that prayer, nothing about finances, nothing about revival, nothing about any of that. It mentions God do not lead me into temptation and not my will, but thy will be done. Now, I'm not saying we should not pray about those things. I'm telling you that God, I don't believe Jesus was praying about that. Now, this is very important. Here, think in your mind. Jesus is in the garden. He has no home. Literally has no home. He has literally no money. Judas has already betrayed him. Peter is about, who is one of his closest friends, is about to betray him. He has no wife, no kids, no earthly kingdom. His body is under such great stress that it is literally, literally sweating drops of blood. It's very important. And God, God... Ask Jesus to give up the one and only thing that he had. Which was his flesh. And Jesus could have been offended at his father. And he could have said something like this. You mean to tell me, father, I don't have a house. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. I don't have an earthly kingdom. I, I got the clothes on my back and that's fixing to be stripped off of me. I don't have an earthly kingdom. I have nothing. I am destitute. I've already been betrayed by Judas. Peter is going to betray me. And now you're asking for the only thing I have left, which is my flesh. Just think about it. That was all he had left. And that was the very thing that God was asking This is why I do not believe that prayer is about begging. I do not believe it's about pleading. I do not believe it's about whining. I now have come to totally and completely believe that prayer is all about surrender. That's what prayer is all about. And the reason why most people do not enjoy praying is because they don't understand how much God loves them, how much he wants to fellowship with them, how much he wants a friendship. They see prayer as a drudgery. And it's asking and it's begging and it's pleading. And what God has been showing me is it's none of those things. It is surrender. Jesus said, 
Father, not my will. What was his will? His will was to keep his flesh and not go to the cross. But not my will, but thy will be done. And God, his father, was asking for the only thing that remained, and that was his flesh. Why did he ask for his flesh? Because his flesh had to be circumcised. It had to be surrendered in order for the Holy Spirit to be released and for sons and daughters to be born called the new testament church this is very important and i keep saying it but your relationship will drift and it will begin to dry up if we do not understand how god thinks If we do not understand, Christians, how God thinks, it's going to be confusing, we're going to be offended, and we're going to be frustrated because we do not get God. Because God's ultimate purpose is for you and I to bear fruit. Are you with me? And the greatest harvest... The world has ever seen happened after Jesus surrendered his will and his flesh. Pardon me for using these cheesy pruning shears. But Jesus, and this is a bad example, but God pruned the only thing that he had and that was his flesh. He pruned it. He cut it off totally. Okay, y'all need a few minutes. I cannot prove this. Cannot. I only tell you what I believe. Again, I'm not ever asking you to believe what I believe. Just trying to give you something to think about. In the Old Testament, they cut the lamb. They drained its blood. Jesus is a type of the lamb. Cannot prove this. But I do believe that every Almost every drop of blood was drained from the time he was beaten on his back to the time he was crucified. Just like that blood was drained from that lamb. Here's what I also believe, and I can't prove it. But I also believe that Jesus is in heaven now, and he has no blood in his body. Because here's here's the one reason why I base that on. Here's what the Bible says. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. God's body is now glorified. It can go through walls. It can appear. He was on the road and then he appeared somewhere else. Your glorified body is going to be amazing. But in order for Jesus to get his glorified body, God had to prune his flesh. Are you with me? Okay. And that was all about God pruning his flesh so that he could bear more. Was he fruitful while he was in his flesh? Sure, but his flesh limited him. He could only be at one place at one time. But when God pruned his flesh, then the spirit could be released and literally maybe hundreds of millions of people have come to know the Lord. Do you agree? Does this make sense? Prayer, ladies and gentlemen, is all about pruning your flesh surrendering yourself to God okay so 
Here's, here's what you won't understand about God. If God loves me so much, then why is He pruning me? He's pruning everything unhealthy from your life. Not to hurt you. Not to make you think God doesn't love you. But so that your life can be like this. Because this is what brings glory to God. Because the word glory, think of it as reputation. What is a better reputation for God? Your life looking like this or your life looking like this? You say, how come we're not seeing more being done? Because he is the head and we are the body. And the body tell, the head tells the body what to do. But we've been begging God and God has been seated on his throne trying to get us to get revelation that everything I do for you is based out of love. It's not based to hurt you. It's not even based to chastise you. He will do it. But when he chastises you, it's because you've been walking in disobedience. And now what he's trying to do is he's trying to prune sin from you. So now you can start bearing fruit. Now he's trying to prune self from you so that you can start bearing fruit. Now he's trying to prune offense from you so your life can look like this. Because when you stay connected to the vine, I don't know how long I've been told. I've been told that a tree, a freshly planted tree does not really produce good fruit. It takes three to five years. When you're in seasons of waiting, God must not love me. Yes, He loves you. Just because this tree is not producing right now doesn't mean that you go cut it down. When all you know to do to stand, you just stand. The rain is coming. The sun's going to shine. And in due season, and in due season, you shall reap if you what? Faint not. Don't fall out with God. Are you with me? Okay. So why, why does Jesus prune? Here, here's what he does. He prunes self so that you understand what life's about. It ain't about you. It's about serving others. He prunes relationship. Why is this person exiting my life? Because probably they're unhealthy for you. Why is he pruning sin? Because he doesn't want you to get delight from sin. He wants you to get delight from serving him. Make sense? It's not to hurt you. He loves you. Everything your heavenly father is doing for you is for your good. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Man, time goes. I'm asking for you to ask God to let the Holy Spirit expose every lie you might be believing. Satan's one desire is to separate the branches from the vine. And I'm hurrying. Here it is. Sin is what? It's the source of all loss. I'm going to say it again. Sin is the source of all loss. What is self? Self is the source of all grief. What is offense? Offense is the source of all anger. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. How? Check this out, y'all. Check this out. How did Jesus defeat Satan? It's fixing to blow your mind. Surrender. How did he? 
did he defeat Satan in the garden? Surrender. Not my will, but thy will be done. How did Jesus defeat the devil on the cross? I wish I had a nail. Fruit. Fruit. I'm not being ugly, not being rude, not being, not being sacrilegious. He didn't defeat Satan on the cross by speaking in tongues. And though we believe in that, he defeated Satan by fruit. And he bore all nine fruit of the Spirit on the cross. How did Jesus become the greatest leader that the world has ever known? He served others. Now I'm going to tell you this again. Please stay with me. Think about this. Somebody walks up to you and asks you this question. How did your king win the greatest war? Surrender. When was the last time you heard of any army surrendering and that's how they won? See, because you don't think like God thinks. That's why you're offended. God don't see it the way you do. The greatest war that was ever won in the history of the ages was won by surrender. How does your God fight? What was his weapons? Was it a sword as big as Goliath? Was it a slingshot like David's? Was it a spear like the mighty Goliath? How did your king win the war? Fruit. Fruit. Mm-hmm. How, 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 how did he become the greatest leader the world has ever known? Serving others. He never lived in a house of mirrors. And he just stayed connected to his father. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I got to share this with you because this is powerful. I need a chair real quick. I just need 10 more minutes. David, get me a chair. Pronto. Please. And I'm I'm about to be done. I don't know if this verse is going to come up, but I'm going to read it when David brings this chair. Ephesians 2. This is very key. But God. Say, but God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even now, we were dead in our trespasses. But what did he do? He made us alive. We were down, but what did he do? He raised us up. And now, what does he do? He seats us. Where? In heavenly places. David, I'm so sorry. I need another chair. Okay, so this king of yours 
won the greatest battle of the ages. How? Surrender. Surrender. What did he fight with? The fruit of the Spirit. You know what held Jesus on that cross? It wasn't the nails. You know what it was? It was called self-control. He said, I could have called down 10,000 legions of angels, but because I love you so much, I'm going to control myself. Check this out. Even here, little old Mary is his mother looking at Jesus. She's crying. John's right there. And the kindness of Jesus says, John, pay attention, son. That's my mother, but now she's yours. He was thinking about his mother while he was on the cross. And his back was all like mush. And Isaiah, read Isaiah. It says he was marred more than any other man. He didn't even look like a man. And now he's thinking about his mother on the cross. That's called the fruit of kindness. Check this out, and I'll let you go. This is in me, man. It's eating me up. Because he surrendered to the Father's will and allowed his Father to prune his flesh. Where is he now? Where is he now? Heaven tells us where he's at. He's seated. Where, what does the throne mean? It means... What does a throne mean? A throne means a seat of authority. Right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think King Charles III, when he was coronated and became king, and he sits on that throne, let me ask you this question. Do you think he begs for somebody to do something? you think he pleads for it to get done? Probably not. Why? Because he's in a seat of authority. Now, according to Ephesians, where are you at in his mind? Come here, David. Please. You look more like Buddha than God, but <clears throat> come here. <clears throat> he said, I can't get no love. Y'all get a little imagination. God that looks a little bit like Buddha is seated on his throne. Now, where are we in the mind of God? Put that, put that verse back up, please. Who's ever helping me on media, put that verse back up so I can show you that I'm not reading out of my Bible, I'm reading out of yours. This is Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 9. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Next verse. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, not on your performance. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Now how does your God work? He rests. How does he win his wars? He surrendered. How did he fight his greatest battle? Fruit. What is he doing now? He's at rest. Seated. Why? Because he surrendered in a garden. And said, not my will, but thy will be done. Didn't plead and beg, just surrendered. Now he's seated. Now here we come as sons and daughters, and we think we got to beg. Plead. <laughs> For what? I'm seated. Check this out. 
I'm, I'm leaving. I'm walking away from this worker bee mentality, this warrior in the kingdom mentality, and from this performance mentality. I'm walking away from it. And I'm totally embracing this friendship with God. I'm seated with Christ. Why do I have to beg somebody I'm seated right next to? I'm sorry. I know I'm taking a long time. 37 miracles in the Gospels, recorded in the Gospels, not one time. Did Jesus ask? Did he plead? Did he beg? Three ways. He spoke it. He commanded it. And he gave an instruction. Why? Because he knew he was in relationship with the Father. Stay right there. And every temptation that the enemy tried was for what? To try to sever the relationship of the Son to the Father. So hopefully he would not be, go to the cross and be fruitful. But because he surrendered and said, not my will, but thy will be done. He's now seated. And because of what he's done, he sees me as the finished work of Calvary. So I'm seated. So now I'm not begging. I'm not pleading. I'm at rest. Here's what your Bible says. This is crazy. It's almost like an oxymoron. Work diligently to rest. Because everything in you says you're not good enough if you're not doing something. See, the reason why your joy is not full is because you're offended. You're offended at God because you don't think he did it right. How dare you, God, treat my younger brother like you did? How dare you cause me to lose some things? And God is saying, if you, if you can only get my mind, I promise you, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm only here to prune self. I'm only here to prove sin. I'm only here to prune offense. So that your life can be like this. And you can rest. Because you're seated with me. And we're friends. Father, I thank you for your word. Literally, it... it feels like fire shut up in my bones. I wonder why, why, Lord, why is it there more joy in your house? I've wondered. I've wondered. And I think, Lord, you're showing me. So many of my kids do not see me as a good father. And much like the elder brother got offended in his, many of my kids are offended in me. And it's the enemy's good pleasure to rob them of a life of surrender so they can never be seated and rest and enjoy all that I want to give them. Father, would you open our eyes that we may see all that you have done for us, that you're a good, good Father, and that you love us more than our little finite minds can ever imagine. Would you let revelation be in this house? In Jesus' name.
Everybody say amen. Sing something. Just stay right where you are, please, if you don't have to go. 